from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. This is Steve Mencher for the Library of Congress, and this is another in our series of Music and the Brain podcasts based on the series of talks here at the library. I'm talking with Norman Middleton, a concert producer at the library, and Jessica Crash, a musician and a composer who teaches at George Washington University. One of the courses she teaches is called Dangerous Music, and that's the subject of our conversation today. And we maybe start by talking about a musical interval that some people have called dangerous or devilish, which is the tritone. So if you were starting on C, uh, for instance, if you jumped up to F sharp, uh, like the beginning of Leonard Bernstein's great song from West Side Story, Maria, that would be a tritone. What could possibly be devilish or dangerous about two musical notes? One of the issues with the tritone comes from physics, and I assume our brain is somehow tied in with the physics in the out world outside of the brain. And that uh, the tritone, if you have uh, a string for each note, the ratio of those strings is a ratio of the square root of two to one. And the square root of two is a very strange number in physics, and it makes mathematicians, it, at different times in history, it made them uncomfortable and was a kind of a forbidden number. And I was fascinated that that also was an interval that was uncomfortable for people. Mm. in sound. Mm. So throughout history from a long time ago up until the rock music of recent times, this tritone has been used in, in various ways to, to give you a feeling, to make you feel something. That's right, and, and the feeling was almost always negative. Uh, even now, in, in, in things like uh, gospel music, diminished chords are frowned upon and diminished chords uh, are based on tritones. And so just that far afield from the original idea is, is still uh, in play today. As we're talking about dangerous music, the idea of the devil has shown up often in music, whether it's something that the devil is doing in the music, music written about evil or the devil, whether it's stories of musicians having sold their souls to the devil in order to play almost superhumanly. And so in your talk, you talked a lot about that, and I wonder if you could share some of that with us. Yes, the devil entity has several facets. There's going back to the tritone, it was called Diabolus in music, musica, Diabolus in musica, the devil's music. And then there's the devil as Beelzebub and Mephistopheles and Faust and all that kind of stuff, where it takes the devil himself uh, is a humanoid. And then you have the third facet, people selling their soul to the devil to enhance their talent. All three of those things have big uh, histories in, in music. For instance, going back to the devil being a source of um, making your talent better, one of the earliest ones is uh, the thing about Tartini, the Baroque composer, who supposedly met the devil in a dream. And in that dream, the devil played a piece to him in the dream, and Tartini supposedly got up and wrote it down. Well, that story is like sort of like an urban myth. There's really no evidence that Tartini ever had that dream, but the, the story took on a life of its own. Then there's a, the, the one about Paganini, who supposedly had the devil standing right next to him while he played these fantastic pieces. And then there's uh, Robert Johnson, who was a, a blues singer, 
who supposedly sold his soul to the devil so that uh, he could play better and and have a, a better career. So the devil is a very powerful influence. Uh, then you have the devil in, in heavy metal music. Started back with the tritone. A lot of heavy metal music uses the tritone, and they, those guys do that on purpose because they know that the tritone is considered evil. And a lot of heavy metal people use that evil for publicity. There are actually very few heavy metal musicians that are Satanists, but they know that people don't like the devil and they don't like Satanism, so they just use it as a marketing ploy, and it's very successful. Mm. Jessica, I know that sometimes the evilness or the dangerousness of music is something that's sort of ginned up uh, politically. I'm thinking particularly of what happened in the late 30s in Nazi Germany, where the uh, music of Jewish composers was thought to be somehow uh, disgraceful or degenerate, and therefore the Nazis forbid it or, or had it not be performed uh, in that era. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how they were trying to use this idea of, of dangerous music for their own political ends? I think that the Nazis had a very muddled aesthetic policy, and they latched on to some things that were really in the music, and much of it was a fabrication. There were only maybe 2% of the musicians in Germany were Jews, but the Jews were at the forefront of some of the modernist music, and the modernist music did tend to be more dissonant. And so the Nazis came out with stands against that kind of dissonant modernism, but they tolerated it in the Italian modernists, and they tolerated it from Stravinsky during the non-aggression pact with Russia. So... You know, there are, there are psychological and political factors, and it's fascinating when they overlap like this and they could latch on to something that people already were uncomfortable about in the new modernism and, and gain some support from the public when they criticized Schoenberg or banned you know, some of this modernist music. Um, on the other hand, they also tried to ban jazz, but there was so much popular interest in jazz that they had to kind of accommodate and say jazz was okay if it was German musicians playing it. Now, let's take Schoenberg, for example. What did they point to in, in his music and as something that was particularly offensive to them or particularly, you know, quote-unquote, dangerous? Well, Schoenberg was Jewish, so I think that was, that was the so issue. Just by definition. Yeah, although they had, they, they had these different public statements they'd make about aesthetics that were muddled, and we see similar things in the Soviet Union with Stalin, that they kind of made these decrees. In the Soviet Union, you have a decree against formalism, but nobody really knew what formalism was. So they'd have these political stands that masqueraded as aesthetic stands, but they were pretty incoherent. Um, with Schoenberg, his music was dissonant. It was complicated. It was at the forefront of things that were going on in Europe. And Schoenberg thought that he was, with his new system, going to make German music dominant for the next hundred years. You know, he saw himself as a good German, and he was very much in the German tradition of Bach and Brahms and Beethoven. And the Nazis said that he had destroyed the triad. And as if, you know, the Nazis were claiming that the triad was German when everybody had been using the triad. So they said that Schoenberg was ruining German music, and, and Schoenberg thought he was rescuing German music. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, Norman, I know in your talk you talked specifically about sometimes when rock music or, or heavy metal music 
rap music as well, had specifically caused either murder or suicide among young people. And this seems, you know, on the one hand, an extension of starting in the 1950s when parents would say, well, that rock and roll music is, is no good, you know, and about some also very specific incidents that actually did happen and went to court. Yes, there were some cases. There was a case out in Las Vegas where um, these guys were sitting around listening to rock music, and they and they were drinking. And one of them decided that uh, he would commit suicide. Or the, there were two guys, and they made sort of this suicide pact. And so they went into, I think, a, a, a playground or something, and they had uh, a shotgun. And one of them took the, the shotgun and, and, and blew his own head off. And then the other guy took the same shotgun, and but the, sh- the, the shotgun by this point was so bloody that he didn't shoot himself correctly, and he survived, but barely. And so it, he had years and years and years of corrective surgery until he finally died of, of his wounds. And the song that they were listening to was a song by Judas Priest called Beyond the Realms of Death. And so the question becomes, you know, did the music cause the suicide or was there something else going on with these kids that they may have committed suicide anyway, no matter what they were listening to or if they were listening to anything at all. Okay. And when you two gave your presentation here, I know you ended up talking about dangerous dance, and that's a good place for us to end as well. It seems like, to me, social dancing would almost by definition be dangerous. It's the kind of aspect of things where two people can get together and touch and move rhythmically and become somewhat intimate under the cover of music. But that may not necessarily be what what you had looked into. I'm always fascinated by the story of Rite of Spring. Um, I'm fascinated about it because we studied it in theory class and orchestration class. And I knew this piece for years until I finally went and saw a live performance with a dance and realized it was a story about ritual murder of a young woman, which my theory teachers never told us. So that's my initial fascination. But in that, I started looking at the history of the riot at the premiere and, and when you look at the dance, the dance was also challenging as well as the music. Traditional ballet is about hierarchy. You have the corps de ballet, and then you have the special few couples, and then the prima ballerina. Rite of Spring was anti-hierarchy. It dealt with all the dancers as one group, and that sounds very much a political and ethical statement. Um, Rite of Spring was mainly provocative in its quote-unquote primitivism and trying to challenge the uh, Parisian upper class to look at the sides of themselves that they weren't owning up to, I think. Or, or to say that the Russian primitivism, or the Russians were, were better, were more real than the Parisians. But I think there was this statement in the way the choreography dealt with hierarchy that was provocative. Hmm. What other kinds of dancing is dangerous, Norman? Dance seems to be inherently conflicted because dance, it's alone and in itself, is a sensual activity. It's the only art form that involves the entire human body. Throughout the three major religions, there were rules established in, in all three. There's uh, in Muslims and, and Jewish 
cultures, dancing is okay as long as the uh, the two sexes are separated, uh, as long as the dance is in glorification of God, and it's the same in in, in Christianity too. Christians have taken it one step further, or some Christians, uh, conservative Christians have taken it one step further, and and in some Pentecostal churches, uh, dancing is forbidden altogether. But oddly enough, there's lots of there are lots of instances in the Bible where dancing is okay because it's all in glorification of God. But and it seems that. In recent years, uh, slowly but surely, dance has has become part of church services. Oddly enough, it took a long time for that to happen, especially in some Christian churches. But it's it's okay now. I've been talking with Norman Middleton, a concert producer here at the Library of Congress, and Jessica Crash, a pianist and composer who teaches at George Washington University. We've been talking about dangerous music as part of the series of podcasts we're doing based on the lectures on music and the brain being given at the Library of Congress. I'm Steve Mencher. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.